So this evening we'll continue with this theme that we've been exploring over quite a few weeks now, which is the theme we've called Living a Life of Mutual Benefit, an exploration of the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, We've spent quite a few weeks recently looking at the factor of wise livelihood. So tonight I thought to transition into the next path factor, which is right effort. Well, before we dive in in a bit more detail, just to step back a bit and to remember that this term right, as in right view, right thought and so on, is actually a much more nuanced than the English word would suggest. So unfortunately in English when we hear the word right, what associations come with that? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's that immediate, right? And that, you know, even though we might intellectually tell ourselves it's broader than that, it's very hard to get out of that binary right, wrong, good, bad, success, failure, and so on. And that in turn, very easily activates all of that inner conditioning that tells us that we sometimes we get caught by the inner critic that pushes us and punishes us for anything less than perfection. Or perhaps the inner rebel comes up who just wants to reject the entire exploration out of an unconscious fear of failure. Or perhaps the inner couch potato who just finds it all too hard and would like to pull the covers up and go back to sleep. <laughs> Somebody, some of you might recognize that one, it sounds like. And so these kind of default reactions, I think, can be particularly strong when it comes to effort. Because when we put the term right in front of the word effort, again, I don't know how it sounds to you, but for me early on I would hear right effort and I would just think blood, sweat and tears and grim determination hard work, you're like even your face right now, (laughs) grim grim and I brought this grim determination to my meditation practice that was (coughs) fueled fueled by this underlying belief that nothing I did could ever measure up to this mythical concept of right effort And as I'm sure you all know from your own practice, when that's our underlying attitude, it's not sustainable. So as an antidote to all of those kind of unconscious reactions and attitudes, I try to usually translate the term right as appropriate or wise. And to keep in mind that it's supported by this very first path factor, Remember, all the way back to wise view. So all of these path factors, they're not just a linear, got one, tick, move to the next, got that, tick. They keep circling around and reinforcing and supporting each other. So we want to keep circling back to the beginning, to wise view, to make sure that what we're doing is in alignment with that wise view. In other words, it's what we're doing is leading to more ease, to more happiness, to more freedom. And in fact, the technical definition in the teachings of what wise effort actually means is the effort to release harmful, unskillful states and in their place 
to cultivate beneficial mental qualities. So mental qualities such as the four Brahma-Vahara, kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, and the seven awakening factors. I'm not going to do the pop quiz this time. <laughs> You're off the hook. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, I'm testing myself now, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Phew, I've got the seven. So those plus dana or generosity, openness, ease, contentment, interest, warmth, altruism, any others? I missed out. Got them? And so what do those mental qualities have in common? Kindness. Yeah, kindness, you could say. Kindness is one specific, but let's let's get more specific. How do those qualities feel when when we're calm, when we're kind, when we're generous, when we're experiencing joy, when we're experiencing altruism, how does that feel? Pleasant, pleasant, yes, pleasant, that's simple, they're pleasant, all of them are pleasant, so we tend to overthink it, right? But if you don't overthink it, but just think, how those qualities are experienced, all of them are pleasant. So by definition, wise effort is leading in the direction of pleasant, pleasant mental qualities. And we want to keep that in mind as, a ten, as an antidote to that tendency to think of right effort as being almost self-punishment or self-judgment or striving to achieve something mythical in the far off future and in the process making ourselves miserable. So we want to keep in mind that all of this effort is in service of moving towards what in the Zen tradition they call effortless effort, which I think of as the ripening of all those skillful qualities that I just mentioned. So ultimately, effortless, effortless, effortless effort. But to get there in the beginning, we have to make effort, which is why the Buddha made it a specific path factor of its own. Because I think you all know from your own experience, and we've heard you know, in our explorations of wise livelihood, that it takes effort, firstly, to get on this path, and then it takes effort to stay on it and to keep developing it and cultivating it. So tonight I'd like to focus more on effort generally in the context of our daily lives because that links back to our exploration of wise livelihood. Because as we were exploring how we live our everyday lives has a very powerful effect on our ability to sustain a meditation practice. So if we're chronically busy, tired, overworked, it's very hard to make the time and the space to regularly meditate. And vice versa, how well we meditate powerfully affects our ability to shape our lives in the direction of ease. 
<coughs> that, in a nutshell, is wise effort informed by wise view. And this is how the IMS Dharma teacher, Sharon Salzberg, talks about it. She says, the way we do anything can reflect the way we do everything. It's useful to see whether our lives outside of meditation practice are congruent with our lives as we sit. Are we living according to our deepest values, seeking the sources of real happiness, applying the skills of mindfulness, concentration, and kindness throughout all areas of our lives? As we practice, that begins to happen naturally over time. But in the meantime, we can look at our lives to see if there are, is any disharmony that we want to address. Are there disconnections between our values in meditation and our values in the world? Our habits of consumption, for example, or how we treat a particular person, or how well we take care of ourselves. If we find something off kilter, we have the tools to work for balance. So wise effort is in fact the balanced effort that Sharon is pointing to. The balance between the extremes of trying too hard on one hand and not trying hard enough on the other. And finding that balance is a process of constant refinement because it's constantly changing and it'll be different for every one of us. So what's wise effort for John right now is going to be different for me, <coughs> for Katrina, for Steve. We're constantly adjusting the circumstances, our effort to suit the circumstances that we're in. Having said that, though, there are pretty common patterns that most of us fall into, sometimes erring on the side of too much effort, other times collapsing into not enough effort. So I'd like to focus more on the last one tonight in terms of our daily life practice. The tendency to be complacent to make not enough effort. So before we go there though, I invite you to make the effort to not fall into self-judgment as you hear this talk, to not fall into the tendency to take it personally. Oh, she's talking about me, I knew it. <laughs> to take in what's useful. And, yeah, just to take in what's useful and not, as best you can, fall into judgment. So remembering, because of wise view. All of these patterns in us are not personal. They arise due to conditions. They're not our unique shortcomings. And they can be changed due to conditions. So we have agency over how they develop and can be released. So it takes effort to keep orienting our lives in this direction. Because generally speaking, it's not the direction that mainstream society is going in. As the Buddha repeatedly said, this path is swimming upstream. And he was talking in the context of India around 4 or 500 BC. Fast forward to today, I mean, I can't possibly know, but it seems to me that society is even less in alignment with Buddhist values now than it was back then. 
And I recently read some extracts from a study that was done in uh, 2013. And apparently Google launched, uh, released a database of over 5 million books that were published between the year 1500 and 2008. And it was possible to search those 5 million books by keywords to see their subjects. And what they discovered was that between 1960 and 2008, individualistic words increasingly overshadowed communal words and phrases. So over 48 years, words and phrases like personalized, self, stand out, unique, I come first, I can do it myself, were used more frequently. And communal words like community, collective, tribe, share, united, band together, and common good receded in usage. And in a different study covering the whole 20th century, 50 words associated with moral virtue, 74% of them were used less frequently as the century progressed. So certain types of virtues were particularly hard hit. Words like bravery and fortitude fell by 66%. And usage of gratitude words like thankfulness and appreciation fell by 49%. And then humility words like modesty and humbleness dropped by 52%. And even kindness and helpfulness dropped by 56%. So there are all these markers that show this shift in the sort of virtues that society values, how those have changed over time. And as the authors pointed out, the virtues that are more relevant to economic production and exchange became more prevalent as society has become more individualistic. And I was struck in that list that many of the virtues, in quotation marks, that are in decline are the same ones that Buddhism (laughs) values more highly. So I just found that interesting, that perhaps more than ever we're going against the grain. It's a little bit saddening. And yet this Noble Eightfold Path helps us to cultivate these qualities. And at the same time, because in some ways we're out of sync with mainstream society at times, it can feel hard to resist the sort of peer group pressure and the social norms and to at times feel like we're the odd one out because we're not engaging in office gossip or not going out drinking for hours on a Friday night or not obsessing about our appearance or, you know, whatever particular things where we find ourselves perhaps not quite in sync with our colleagues or our friends or our families. And at times it can all seem too hard. Hence that motivation I mentioned earlier to just pull the covers back up and go back to sleep. And at least in my own experience though, although that particular approach of trying to just, okay, it's too hard, let it go, might seem to bring some short-term ease. In my own experience, in the long term, that superficial comfort, it often masks an underlying 
dis-ease or unease. And the longer we live out of alignment with our deeper values, the more nagging that kind of uh, dis-ease can become. And it takes more and more effort to keep trying to ignore it. That nagging feeling of not rightness on some level, that we're not really living into our deepest values and our deepest capabilities, that we're in some ways selling ourselves short and taking the easy way out. So in terms of this path factor of wise effort, when we're not living in ways that are in accord with our deeper wisdom, it fritters away our energy. I don't know if you've had that experience, but it just feels like we're scattered, pulled, distracted, and it takes a lot of energy to try and keep ourselves together. But the opposite is also true, that when we are able to marshal ourselves and live more in alignment with those values, that slow, creeping despondency can fall away. And instead all of our energy is going in the same direction and it can be a very powerful, almost like a turbocharge because part we're not it's not like having a sea anchor behind us, it's sort of dragging us back all the time. And you might have noticed, you know, those times, you know, it's natural for energy and effort to rise and fall, to ebb and flow, at times to feel strong, other times to feel weak. But you may have noticed, you know, the momentum works both ways. So when we get a boost of energy, we get more inspired, we get more momentum. But the opposite, when we, when that energy starts to flag, that also has its own momentum. So I don't know about for you, but when I'm doing something regularly, if I miss a week, the next week it feels twice as hard to pick it up again. And then the third week, it feels like five times as hard. And then the fourth week, it's like, oh, I think I'll just watch Netflix. So do you get, do you have that experience? The same with um, meditation. We quickly can fall into inertia. So this article by Sharon Salzberg, she's talking about some of the, how to maintain that wise effort. And she says, if your self-discipline or dedication seems to weaken, Remember that this is natural and you don't need to berate yourself for it. Seek inspiration in the form that works best for you, reading poetry or prose that inspires you, communicating with like-minded friends, finding a community of meditators, maybe a group to practice with, or form your own meditation group. If you haven't been keeping a meditation journal, start one. And keep in mind that no matter how badly you feel things are going, no matter how long it's been since you last meditated, you can always begin again. Nothing is lost. Nothing is ruined. We have this very moment in front of us. We can start now. So I appreciated how she pointed to the power of sangha, of community, as a very powerful place to reconnect and find that inspiration. And to some extent, being with like-minded people can alleviate that, at times, sense of isolation or alienation when we do feel like we're swimming upstream. So in a strange way, we're creating here positive peer group pressure 
to withstand the negative peer group pressure that we sometimes encounter. Not in terms of groupthink, but just shared understanding of what's truly of value. So, cultivating Dharma friends, and then the other uh, powerful support for maintaining momentum is as often as we can, when we can, going on retreat. So most of us need regular periods of sustained practice in the supportive conditions of a meditation center because without that it's pretty difficult to make headway against those really deeply conditioned habits of mind of clinging, craving, of resisting, ignoring that keep us caught in all our habitual reactivity. And as I think most of you know, this insight meditation tradition that we're part of, it actually developed in Burma, what's now Myanmar, from the recognition that lay people needed access to meditation practice, intensive retreats, just as much as monastics did. And so this form of the nine-day insight meditation retreat was developed back in Burma in the 50s and has continued through to today becoming sort of the backbone of vipassana or insight practice. And just to acknowledge that there are times for all of us when going on retreat isn't possible. It can be physical, financial, or different kinds of uh, family conditions, obstacles. But over the time that I've been involved in this, I've been amazed to see that when there's a will, there's a way and the kind of things, the obstacles that people manage to get over in order to do a retreat. And just to say, I think most of you know, but in terms of the retreats that I run for myself here, not when I'm involved in a center, but my own retreats, I have a really strong aspiration to try and make them available for people. So even you know things like financially, if the cost seems like a barrier, I would rather run a retreat and not quite cover my running costs, but have it be available to people, than have that become an obstacle. So if that ever is an issue, I'm really just welcoming you to talk to me about it. One of the benefits, side benefits for me of managing Bhikkhu and Alia's retreat is that some of that money I've put into a scholarship fund for people who regularly come to Auckland Insight. So if you semi-regular person, you're welcome to talk to me about taking advantage of that. And so just speaking of Bhikkhu Analio, some of you here did his recent online six-day retreat. And I don't know if any of you remember towards the end, he made a comment about looking at how he lived his life from the vantage point of being on his deathbed which, as many of you know, is a traditional monastic and lay person's training to contemplate how am I living my life. So the phrase is, the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I using my time? And people are encouraged to just check in with us regularly and to see. And again, this can energize, can clarify, can sharpen. It's not about being morbid or heavy or depressing, but it can give us the energy to really get clear if we're feeling stuck or stale or stagnant 
if I look back now, would I feel satisfied with how I'm spending my time? Might I feel a sense of satisfaction or clarity or joy that, yeah, for the most part, I feel like I am doing the best that I can? <coughs> or there might be some areas where it feels a bit more like there are squandered possibilities or things that aren't quite in sync yet. But if we bring wise view to that, meet it with kindness and compassion, we can start to steer it in a way to bring it back into more alignment with our values. So the purpose of that kind of practice is not to, again, foster self-judgment or inadequacy or misery, but to bring more life, more clarity. And at least for me, the people I've met who do that kind of practice regularly, they have a real lightness to them, even joy. It's remarkable. You know, conventionally, we might think it will be the opposite, thinking about death every day. But the people who do that, and actually people I've met in, say, hospice settings, who are close to the end of their lives but have come to terms with it, there can be a remarkable lightness and happiness and ease. So just to close with... Uh, quote from Ajahn Suchito who describes how this whole process of investigating with wise view making the effort to see what gets in the way of deepening freedom so that those obstacles can be released he says a lotus begins to bud with the first glimpse of clarity at a theoretical level then we can look into what the mind is cooking up and get clear as to what's stoking that fire. Maybe we're trying to possess or control a situation that can't be held or make a son, a daughter or a partner be something that they're not. Or perhaps we're resisting an uncomfortable feeling, getting defensive and pretending it isn't there while denying that we're being defensive. When you realize that you're trying to push a river uphill, or stop it flowing downhill, it's a waste of energy, that's a further budding of the lotus. Then, having the idea that you can release yourself from stress, you stop wasting your time and energy in unnecessary holding, pushing, resisting. That's another release, one which encourages your wisdom to cut off the tangles and biases and desires and worries that bind you in all of that unnecessary effort. The energy that's caught up with confused misunderstanding and wrong activities, whether psychological, physical or emotional, then gets released. And is a feeling of wholeness, peace and freedom. In fact, every time we have some kind of realization Energy is untangled and settles, making the mind feel bright. And to know that it's well worth going through the struggle and inquiry to get there is the wisdom that keeps you going through to the next challenge. So that's what we're doing here. And there's a lot that we can explore. So I wanted to make sure we had plenty of time to just look at some of those themes. So, thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.